1 Kings chapter 1, verses 1 to 31. When King David was old and well advanced in years, he could not keep warm even when they put the covers over him. So his servants said to him, Let us look for a young virgin to attend to the king and take care of him. She can lie beside him so that our Lord the king may keep warm. Then they searched throughout Israel for a beautiful girl and found Abishag, a Shumanite, and brought her to the king. The girl was very beautiful. She took care of the king and waited on him, but the king had no intimate relations with her. Now Adonijah, whose father was Haggith, put himself forward and said, I will be king. So he got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. His father had never interfered with him by asking, why do you behave, behave as you do? He was also very handsome and was born next after Absalom. Adonijah conferred with Joab, son of Zerubiah, and Ibatha the priest, and, they, and he gave them their support. But Zadok the priest, Benaiah, son of Jehoda, Nathan the prophet, Shimei and Ray, and David's special guard did not join Adonijah. Adonijah then sacrificed sheep, cattle, and fattened calves at the stone of Zoheleth near Enrogel. He invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the men of Judah who were royal officials. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Benaniah, or the special guard, or his brother Solomon. Then Nathan asked Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king without a Lord David knowing it? Now then, let me advise you how you can save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go into King David and say to him, My Lord the king, did you not swear to me your servant? Surely Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne. Why then has Adonijah become king? While you are still there talking to the king, I shall come in and confirm that what you have said. So Bathsheba went to see the aged king in his room, where Abishag the Shumanite was attending him. Bathsheba bowed low and knelt before the king. What is it you want? the king asked. She said to him, My lord, you yourself swore to me your servant by the Lord your God. Solomon, your son, shall be king after, after me, and he will sit on my throne. But now Adonijah has become king, and you, my lord, the king, do not know about it. He has sacrificed great numbers of cattle, fattened calves and sheep, and has invited all the king's son, sons, Abitha, the priest, and Joab, the commander of the army. But he has not invited Solomon, your servant. My lord, the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to learn from you who will sit on the throne of my lord, the king after him. Otherwise, as soon as my lord, the king, is laid to rest with his fathers, I and my son Solomon will be treated as criminals. While she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet arrived, and they were told the king, Nathan the prophet is here. So he went before the king and bowed his face to the ground. Nathan said, have you, my lord, the king, declared that Adonijah shall be king after you 
and that he will sit on your throne. Today he has gone down and sacrificed great numbers of cattle, fattened calves and sheep. He has invited all the king's sons, the commanders of the army, and Abatha, the priest. Right now they are eating and drinking with him and saying, Long live king Adonatha. But me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaiah, son of Jehoda, and your servant Solomon, he did not invite. Is this something my lord the king has done without letting his servants know who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? Then King David said, Call in Bathsheba. So the king, so she came into the king's presence and stood before him. The king then took an oath, as surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, I will surely carry out today what I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne in my place. Then Bathsheba bowed low with her face to the ground and kneeling before the king said, May my lord, the King David, live forever. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to have a second Bible reading from Luke chapter 1. The second Bible reading today is Luke chapter 1 verses 26 through 33 and it's on page 723. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. This is the word of the Lord. Again, let me add my welcome. Uh, Please flick back to that uh, really obscure reading we had from Kings, the opening of Kings. It's back on page 235, the the reading that sounded like a soap opera with lots of strange names. Uh, Let's go back there. Uh, It it may be October, but you would have noticed that uh, all the Christmas decorations are already out. They're flogging it like crazy. Uh, We're going to prepare here at Church for Christmas in in one of the best ways we know how. Uh, That is uh, by preparing for the arrival of the King of Kings, at least celebrating it. Uh, We're going back and doing that by by looking at the Book of Kings uh, several thousand years ago, 3,000 years ago it starts, covers about 500 years of history Uh, and over the next seven or so weeks we're going to look at uh, one and two kings, it's 49 chapters all up, in seven weeks that's about 49 days, can I encourage you, get into it, Uh, read a chapter a day, uh, try and push past the strange names and the slightly stodgy writing style that that is sometimes kind of what Hebrew writing is uh, and get into the story. There's a lot of action, Uh, and so I'd encourage you to get there. There's some great things that God does. Uh, We look at it, uh, not least because by the end of it, uh, I trust it will magnify our love for the Lord, the King Jesus. If you see the kings that came before, you can only appreciate him even more. Uh, Why don't I pray, and then we'll look at 1 Kings 1. Our Lord and Father, we are thankful for your word, uh, even the obscure parts. We are thankful that you have revealed yourself to us 
and had written down for us the great deeds that you have done in the past that we can learn from and hold on to them. Uh, Father, we pray that your spirit might be at work now, uh, that as we look at your word, we uh, might have it written deeply on our hearts what you are like, uh, that we in our, our minds would delight in you and that we would change our actions to be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's true we all long for security. Uh, and so often we feel secure. Uh, and yet at the same time, uh, the fragility of this world is being consistently exposed. You know, so uh, after 42 years of power, Libyans managed to overthrow Gaddafi. You know, his power has been shown up, exposed. Uh, same time you go Turkey, it's been devastated by earthquakes. And of course, there are those fleeting moments where, where lives get overthrown even closer to home. You know, we long for security, but, but when it's exposed, what can we do? Where can we go? Uh, I heard a Thai man interviewed just this weekend. Uh, he lives in Bangkok and where the floods are going and they're rising. And he actually removed the sandbags from in front of his place to let the water flow through his house. Uh, he argued and what he, what he said to the uh, interviewer was that, hey, this is what nature wanted and why should one side of the city suffer and not the other side? So he was just kind of, let's move the sandbags and let it flow through. But few of us are willing to give up security quite so philosophically and easily. You know, so we work hard and, and we, we get property and we educate the kids and we invest in super funds and, and, and we still know all, that, all the while we're doing this that it only takes a word from the boss or a collapse in the stock market or a sudden illness and it can all go. And our longing for security, you may have heard words like this from Psalm 46... God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. And therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way, the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. Now you've heard those words perhaps, but, but what does it mean? What, what is God offering? You know, whether you're here as a, a long-term Christian or whether you're simply checking things out, what, what does that mean? What is God really offering? See, this morning God's word points us to real and lasting security. Yet, yes, this world is fragile and uncertain, but his kingdom is secure. So the opening of 1 Kings makes it clear. Um, two, two big things I want us to see and learn from, from 1 Kings at the moment. Uh, first, that God's kingdom is threatened by his people. And secondly, that God's kingdom still stands secure. Okay, first, we see how it's threatened by its people. We, we just had read that fairly obscure opening to 1 Kings, uh, where it's around 970 BC, we're in Jerusalem, where it's God's earthly kingdom, that the nation of Israel, um, it's under threat, uh, but not under threat from you know, enemies out there banging on the gate trying to knock them over, it's, it's the threat within. Uh, God's kingdom is in peril because of his own people. Uh, so the, the first threat is King David himself. Uh, in his heyday, uh, David was this charismatic leader he was a man's man who went out there and fought battles and wrestled bears and lions and did all that kind of stuff at the same time he had this musical side he could write songs he could play you know he, he was the renaissance man before there was a renaissance you know he 1 samuel 18 records how people used to sing songs about how great david was but here in 1 kings 1 he's a has-been now in verse 1 he is so old and frail he can't warm himself up and so we read in 2, two to 4, this beautiful young virgin is found and she sleeps in his arms as nothing more than a hot water bottle. 
you know, suggesting that his potency just isn't there anymore. Now, rather than leading God's nation, it seems he struggles to take care of himself. Uh, he's certainly struggling to manage his own household, let alone the country. So in, in 1 verse 6, um, you notice he, he, he struggles, he's never disciplined his sons. Uh, literally, it reads that he's never caused his, son, his sons upset. You know, he is the, the, the father who always looks to the short-term happiness of his kids. You know, oh, don't cry, kids, you know, keep, stay happy, you know, rather than, rather than doing the long-term good of correcting them and training them and standing up. And, you know, he's bred spoiled brats. You know, and after years of leading God's kingdom, David is actually the threat. He is weak and he is ineffective and his leadership risks that the, the kingdom, God's kingdom, will implode. Uh, because the second threat is the ambitious Adonijah. Uh, Adonijah is the, is the fourth son of David, but the oldest one left. Uh, David's unwillingness to, to discipline his boys meant um, he, he you know, raised up a, a bunch of self-indulged boys, sons. Uh, one of his other sons, Ammon, uh, was so ill-disciplined that he actually forced himself on his half-sister and then sent her away. Uh, another son, Absalom, he was indulged too and dashingly handsome as well. Uh, he murdered this other brother Ammon in revenge. He led a major coup against his father that took the kingdom to civil war. And Adonijah is introduced in verse 5 as just another son like that. You know, he is a man of unbridled ambition. Verse 5, I will be king. That is, here is a guy, he's got the looks, uh, he's handsome, he's, he's got the birthright. Uh, in verse 7, he's got some support. He, he goes and chats with a few key leaders. Uh, notice not everyone, in verse 8, he doesn't have the key players of Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, the, the, the major military heroes of David. So what he does, he's, he's a cunning man, a sneaky man. Verse 10, he strategically leaves them out of his kind of pseudo-coronation. That is, Adonijah is making a, a play for power. You know, yes, there is a king on the throne, but Adonijah's ambition threatens to take Israel up to civil war, to, to, to rip the nation apart. Because uh, the third and perhaps the greatest threat is that a promise that was made to God is about to be broken. So Adonijah can't just take this throne unchecked. Um, David had promised already it would go to his son Solomon. Now, the writer wants us to see just how important that fact is because he, he retells it three times, if you read through all of 1 Kings 1. That's, um, that's a little Hebrew way of doing bold, underlined, italics. They didn't have any of those things in those days. So they just tell you it three times. Get the idea? So in verse 13, we're told about this promise. We're told again in verse 17 uh, and again again in verse 30. I'll, I'll take you to the one in, in verse 30. It says this, David spoke, I will surely carry out today what I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. That is, I made a promise before God, Solomon, your son, shall be king after me and will sit on the throne in my place. That is, the nation is really in danger because promises before God are about to be ignored. So Kings doesn't open with spectacular circumstances. Like we're starting a new book and you kind of go, it's a little bit flat, isn't it? You know, it's a little bit disappointing and a little low-key. You know, the the risk is God's kingdom is about to collapse. There's no great miracles. There's no parting of seas. There's no divine writing on walls. None of the the action stuff that brings us in. Uh, We will get to some of that. But the Lord himself is noticeably quiet in these opening chapters uh, for a good reason. We're meant to see something about the nature of God's kingdom. We're meant to see that weakness is part and parcel of his kingdom on earth Because God genuinely involves his people. Do you get that? God genuinely really involves his people and so weakness is kind of sown into his kingdom. 
you know, of course, you know, we sit here 3,000 years later. Um, God's kingdom on earth is not a political force. We're not worried about Israel. But the gathering that Jesus makes, that, that cuts across nations and, and cuts across ethnic groups, that kingdom, you know, not yet perfected, that kingdom seen here in this church, in all the churches across the world. You know, and God still genuinely involves people in his kingdom. And whenever he does that, whenever he involves humanity, that means there's going to be threats to that kingdom. Now, Jesus himself, he looked weak. You know, he established the kingdom by taking on humanity entirely. Uh, I read someone recently who, um, who talked about the most remarkable conversion in history. I'll give you a moment to think about it. Maybe you've got some names popping to your mind about the most remarkable conversion in history. This, uh, this person argued it was that thief on the cross. Uh, you may remember the story, Jesus was crucified in between two notorious robbers. Uh, one despised him, but the other looked to Jesus. And what did he see when he looked to Jesus? He saw a weak man. He saw a dying man. He saw a man who was rejected by the law. He saw a man who was rejected by his own nation. He saw a man who uh, three years of fickle followers had given up on. But even worse, he saw a man whose closest friends had given up on him. Yeah, he saw weakness, but still that thief was able to look at him and say, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Now, what a remarkable conversion. He looks and sees all this weakness and what's he really seeing? He's seeing a king who will have a kingdom that will go on to eternity, go on beyond death, even though the wrapping is there in human weakness. And his power is still seen through our weakness as he involves us, it involves humanity. You know, Christ's kingdom does look often like it's under threat. Uh, you know, like David, the church is, is often weak in lots of ways. The Apostle Paul, uh, when he wrote in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12, he, he talked about all the hardships that he'd been through, the, the rejections, um, he'd been beaten, uh, he'd been stoned, he'd been driven out of town, he'd been shipwrecked. And on top of all that, you know, the failings of Christians, he's concerned for the churches. Yeah, it's still weak. But Paul sees this is not strange, this is normal. Because that's what happens when God involves humanity. Uh, so Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 13, 4, to be sure, he's not Irish, but he says it anyway, to be sure, Jesus was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. And likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him to serve you. Do you get that? The church, God's kingdom here on earth, looks weak. And there are failures, you know, the adulterous ministers at two respected churches in the past month. You know, the description someone gave to me of their church recently, uh, three times in, in chatting to me they mentioned just how tired and worn out everyone was there. Uh, or another friend, how his church uh, has been forced to close a number of ministries because there just aren't people up to it anymore leading any of them. You know, God's real involvement of humanity means that his kingdom looks weak and it looks under threat. And it, and it brings fractures as well, doesn't it? Not just because of our weakness, because of blatant sin. Uh, in 3 John, a very short letter at the back of your Bible, 3 John, uh, John writes about, you know, kind of modern-day Adonages uh, in church life. He writes about a guy called Diotrephes. He writes in, in 3 John, verse 9, Diotrephes, who loves being first, will have nothing to do with us. Yeah, and he goes on to talk about how he spreads ma uh, malicious gossip uh, and how he's trying to exclude even the apostles and, and others. You know, Diotrephes, like Adonijah, had sinful ambition and it fractured the church. And it still happens. 
you know, in, in recent years, our synod, uh, the kind of governing body of our churches, uh, passed clear guidelines to deal with bullying in church because it's sadly necessary. You know, I've seen churches in the past damaged by those who push themselves forward, grabbing power like Adonijah, I'll be king. You know, and those who've taken their authority and used it selfishly, not in service. And people leave, and people leave hurt. Now, weakness is part and parcel of the privilege God gives us of being involved and involving real people in his kingdom. But thankfully, our weakness is not the final word. Uh, the second point, God's kingdom still stands secure. Uh, so the events of one king's unfold um, and civil war gets averted for the moment. You know, Nathan the prophet, uh, who had been snubbed by Adonijah in verse 10, he kicks into action. 1 Kings 1, uh, 1 verse 11, uh, he races off, he goes to David's wife Bathsheba, he shares the plan, I've got a plan, we can get Solomon on the throne. Uh, here's the plan, you go to the frail king, which he does in verse 17. Uh, and respectfully reminds him of all the promises that he made before God and just happens to inform him of what Adonijah is up to because in his weakness and frailty, he doesn't even know what's happening in his kingdom. Uh, in verse 22, as was planned, Nathan kind of breaks into the conversation and confirms it all. And so David at last gets stirred up. Um, follow with me from verse 33. He, being David, he said to them, Take your Lord's servants with you and set Solomon, my son, on my own mule. Take him down to Gihon. There shall be Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, anoint him king over Israel. Blow the trumpet and shout, long live King Solomon. And then you are to go up with him and he is to come and sit on my throne, reign in my place. I have appointed him ruler over Israel and Judah. Now, and according to his wishes, uh, Solomon gets anointed. If you go down to verse 39 and 40, uh, the crowd is thrilled uh, the phrase actually used at the end of verse 40 about the ground shaking is the same used for a, an earthquake. That's the level of celebration, the kind of party that's going on. It's like an earthquake. Uh, and so not surprisingly, we cut back to um, verse 41 and Adonijah's party. They're hearing the earthquake and the celebration. They're wondering what's going on. They hear the news. Solomon's king. Ah! And so 1 verse 49 at this, all Adonijah's guests rose in alarm and dispersed. They all run away. Yes, the kingdom was threatened by God involving his people, but it's not overcome. And the key to understanding it is 1 verse 48. David's words again. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has allowed my eyes to see a successor on my throne today. That is, people have been plotting and planning away, but it's the Lord's purposes that prevail. God makes sure his kingdom stands secure. And as you move into chapter 2, we're not going to read it all now. You can go and read it at home uh, on your own. But it, it makes clear that it will stay secure in two ways. Uh, by obeying God's word and by destroying enemies. And so as we begin this 500 years of, of Israel's history, God makes it clear that they will be strong if they listen to him. Uh, David's dying words in 2 verse 2 to his son. I'm about to go the way of all the earth. And so be strong. Show yourself a man and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in his ways, keep his decrees and his commands, laws, his laws and requirements as written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go. And that the Lord may keep his promise to me that if your descendants watch how they live, if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a man 
on the throne of Israel. That is, the kingdom will stand forever. One will be on that throne eternally if he listens to the real rule of God. You know, David's called Solomon there to, to be strong and manly. You know, not manly in the sense of, you know, show off your power by, by being stupid and selfish, but have the courage and conviction to walk in God's ways of perfect love and justice. That's far more demanding than often uh, our culture's views and version of manhood. And should he do that, in verse 3, he'll enjoy what God promised. In verse 4, there will be a permanent, secure kingdom. The the second way in 1 Kings 2, we see that that the kingdom will stay secure is if they destroy the enemies. Uh, Again, you can read it later, but basically chapter 2 follows through Solomon putting an end to the enemies of the kingdom. Uh, So Adonijah, you know, he hasn't given up on power. He tries a sneaky way to get married to Abishag, uh, that girl who was the the hot water bottle for David. Uh, And, you know, they see this is an obvious power play. He gets executed in verse 25. Abiathar, who had done that that coronation, um, he gets exiled in in verse 26 and 7. Joab, the general who'd supported him, he was a known kind of murderer off the battlefield as well. He faces justice. Uh, and, the, and a rebel from, from David's time, Shimei, is sent away. You know, so chapter 2 finishes, verse 46, the kingdom is firmly established in God's hand. Do you get it? Threatened as it was, weak as it seems, God's kingdom is secure. It will not be thrown. It will stand by the power of a king who walks closely with the Lord and throws his enemies down, which is exactly how Christ secured the kingdom, isn't it? You know, we read in Luke 1, Jesus was given that throne of the father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob. His kingdom will never end. You know, it is a throne that Jesus earned. He established it by his strength, his, his manliness, if you will. That is, he never caved into temptation. You know, he never did what was evil. He only did what was perfect and just and loving. You know, even when the devil was there tempting Jesus, saying, I've got an easier way for you to get the kingdom, he stood firm. Even when Jesus' closest friends betrayed him, he didn't fail. Even as he suffered on the cross, punished for the sins that you and I and all humanity actually committed, he walked strongly in his Father's ways and he prayed, Father, forgive them. Did you get that? In doing so, in his close obedience to his Father, he actually crushed the greater enemies of the eternal kingdom. That is, he crushed sin. He he put death to death. He destroyed the devil who held the, the power of death. Um, Hebrews 12 goes on to talk about it, how he established an unshakable kingdom. Yeah, it might look weak now because of the way he involves us, but, but one day it will be revealed with Christ in all its splendour and glory and it will be shown to be unshakable. Yeah, and even, even as the, the things that we felt like were so secure in this world, even as they fall away, it will not shake. Now, weak and frail it may appear because God includes us. God has established his kingdom. I want to say, whether you're a regular churchgoer or a first-timer, it is both a word of comfort but also a warning. The comfort is that you can have real security in Jesus. You know, we, we look around the world and the certainties you think are certain actually collapse. You know, economies like the, the Eurozone that seem so strong, they struggle. You know, governments that a, a few years ago seemed unassailable have crumbled in the Arab Spring. Uh, There are houses, everyone invests in a house, you know, that's your little castle. No, no, they get destroyed by floods and quakes. You know, around the world, certainties and securities of life collapse. And we know we don't have to look around the world. We we see it here, don't we? 
We see it in our lives. We see it uh, in those we love. We see it in the life of our church. People have lost work. Marriages are broken. Even life itself can go in a moment. As I was reminded uh, at the funeral of, of Melinda's father earlier this week, 62 years old, Money, marriage, work, houses, life itself, none are secure. Oh, yeah, yeah, we, we treasure each of them. We love them, but, but they're shakeable. That's why Paul advises in 1 Timothy 6 that command those who are rich in this present world, isn't that us? And not to be arrogant or put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but put their hope in God who richly provides us everything for our enjoyment. To get it, securities in this world collapse. But there is a comfort that eternal security can be found in Jesus. Uh, in Matthew 7, Jesus talks about two types of people who hear what he has to say. Yeah, and he talks about um, when the storm comes, uh, one survives and the other gets wiped out. And the difference is what people did with what they heard from Jesus. Not whether they heard him or not, but what they did with it. Now, those who, who hear Jesus... And don't reorient every moment of life around the words he speaks. They will lose it all. But those who hear Christ and they build their lives upon everything that he said, they have certainty. Do you get it? That in Jesus there is security. No matter what you lose now, no matter the, the friends, family, work, house, marriage, he will sustain you. And he will hold a place for you in his kingdom eternally. At the moment, there's a, an Iranian pastor, a, a Christian man, uh, Yusuf Nadakani. Uh, he converted from Islam to Christ and uh, he has a young family. Uh, he leads a, a church in Iran of a few hundred and he's been sentenced to death for his faith. Uh, three times he's been offered the chance to deny Jesus and if you do that, you'll get back your freedom. He'd get back his life, he'd get back his family. But the encouragement for us is... He won't let go of Jesus because he understands real security and the comfort it brings. And I ask you, have you got that same comfort because you've built your life on the words of Christ? Because the flip side of that comfort is there's a warning. There is a danger in, in, in ignoring Christ. There, you know, there's not a call for Christians to deal harshly with those who won't believe, but the Bible does speak clearly of a time when Jesus will come and establish his kingdom in power and he will judge the living and the dead. And in Jesus' own words from Matthew 13, as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil and they will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. We mustn't be fooled to think that we've got security by anything of this world. You know, not even your goodness or the, or the goodness of your neighbours will be enough on that day. There is only security in Christ. And outside his kingdom, everything else will collapse. So we all long for security. And thankfully, the God who is so strong that he can incorporate our human weakness into his kingdom, he offers that refuge. He offers that kind of security and strength in his kingdom. Why don't we pray? Our Lord and Father, we thank you. 
We thank you for the Lord Jesus who established your kingdom. We thank you that in your kindness you include us in your kingdom, weak and frail as we are. And yet our frailty doesn't overcome, but your victory does. We thank you for Jesus and his obedience to you. We thank you for his victory over our great enemies. And we thank you for his kingdom that will last forever that he invites us to be part of. Father, we pray that we might find security in him and him alone. In Jesus' name, amen.